0: So what's this object? It's very striking.
1: Oh, yeah, that's one of the iconic objects of the museum. It's a sort of, uh, of a canoe, I mean, of 23 metres long. It weighs 3,500 kilos. It's made out of one single tree, out of sipo wood, which is a type of uh, mahony. And uh, it uh, took about 100 rowers, and it was used to uh, transport the headman from one village to the other. Now, history says that it was a present of the Congolese people to King Leopold III when he visited Congo in 1956. Of course, today we wonder, was it really a gift or was it a gentle encouragement by the colonial administration to uh, to uh, give it? That's a different thing, but it's a beautiful piece. It's, it's and very striking here. Most people, when they come here first time in their life, it's something that they always remember. And these
2: words on the wall behind it, these yeah. are really... Important as part of your yeah because see mission. we're
1: uh, everything passes except the past so that we always carry uh, that memory of the colonial past with us and it has effects until today you know you can live in today's world but you always carry that history with you and and you have to confront it you have to discuss it you have to be open about it you have to be transparent so
0: and that's the whole point of your renovation isn't yeah. It? Episode 4, The Last Colonial Museum. Everything passes except the past. That's what's written over the huge canoe, which is one of the first objects that the visitor sees in the hall linking the old building of the Africa Museum in Brussels with the new building. And it's the institution's central message since its renovation – the African Museum reopened at the end of 2018 after major works, prior to which it had been frozen in time, known as the last colonial museum. In this episode of Behind the Scenes at the Museum, I've come with Fiametta Rocco, Chief Culture Writer at The Economist, to the Africa Museum in Brussels, to discuss the museum's history and its current aims with the director Grido de Gasels, and to assess the attempts to come to terms with a horrific past. So we're standing in the main foyer of the, of the entrance, sort of the new building. It looks out to the old building. So this is all glass that we're standing in front of. And we're, it's set in um, rather nice grounds, a fountain, quite palatial. I think somewhere there's a statement on the glass as to what the trying to do, so let's have a look at what that is because this is what the museum says it's going to do There is, a, it's really
2: a mission statement that's been engraved and then painted over into the glass, so you can read it quite clearly, it's, it's set against the green lawn, so it stands out quite a lot, and you see behind it, first of all this extraordinarily sort of curlicued Late 19th century, early 20th century museum with its great Romanesque windows and a lot of statuary on the balustrade around the top. It's a monumental, confident European period piece. The words that are in front of it on the glass say the museum building then and now. In 1910, the Musée du Congo as it was called, was opened, a design by a Parisian architect, Charles Giraud. The initiator and biggest funder of it, of course, was King Leopold II, the father of the Congo project, who had just died the previous year. He funded this museum project largely with the extraordinary profits that he'd made from ivory and rubber in the Congo Free State. This was the very beginning of motorization and rubber was going to become extraordinary. It was absolutely the centrepiece of what he was trying to do there and the centrepiece of the dreadful cruelty that was inflicted on the Congolese. Now, the new museum building that we're in with this great glass wall was opened at the end of 2018. It was designed by a Belgian architect called Stefan Bell. And it says it is the beginning of a new era, the biggest challenge of which is decolonizing the museum. Few words, but a humongous challenge. Uh, My name is Fiamma Taroko, and I'm the chief culture writer at The Economist. I grew up in Africa, and I have a very particular interest in this museum. So I first came here about 30 years ago. I grew up in the very end of the colonial period in Africa, and this was a monument to colonialism. It was absolutely extraordinary, like no other museum on earth. It was closed five years ago. They had to do um, a lot of renovation work and they decided at the same time that they were going to have a wholesale rebuilding, renewal and a complete makeover of the exhibition spaces.
0: What did you think should happen at the time?
2: I was very excited to see what they were going to do because it seemed um, such a surprising thing for such a conservative place to have taken on. I mean, all museums are conservative, and this one is more conservative than most. I mean, it's not just a museum, it's a, it's a research centre. They've got extraordinary insect collections, they've got collections of rocks, they've got ethnographic collections, they've got a lot of um, African heritage, very, very, very delicate masks and raffia were built up over the decades. So I was intrigued to see what they would do, and I think a lot of people... Felt, had very mixed feelings about it because there were people who had come here with, as young children who were rather attached to the stuffed crocodiles <laughs> and the <laughs> great awesome. big bongo and everything that there was in the very long haul in the old part mm. so there were people who didn't want it to change so much and there were people who thought it should be completely scrapped
0: because that it was to Difficult. It was
2: too toxic. Mm. It's too colonial. The Belgian colonial history is unparalleled in its cruelty.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I think probably only the German colonial history in South West Africa comes anywhere close to it. So...
0: So you can either think, well, we'll just forget that ever happened yes. by obliterating this monument to it.
2: You have to face up to the past. Mm. It was a very, very particular challenge here because it's a listed building. There is marble, there are marble and halls and alcoves with King Leopold's double L emblem, which you'll see everywhere, and they couldn't touch any of that. And yet they had to do And that's
0: quite triumphal, isn't it? I mean that's
2: it's it's a monument to triumphalism. Yeah. You've got this extraordinary entrance hall with these four gold statues basically extolling Belgium's civilizing mission in Africa.
0: Mm. So they can't take that down, so they have to somehow contextualize it.
2: They have they had to add to it. They had to give it a sense of history. They had to, 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 to they had to strip out the triumphalism as much as they can. they had to strip out the propaganda and they had to fill in the context and the gaps and the hidden things that the yeah. propaganda had really obliterated.
0: So bring that hidden history out, sort of make yes. it, make it, make the invisible visible. <laughs> The first object we take a close look at is an ivory bust of King Leopold II. Originally, in the museum decades ago, it stood in the striking main rotunda. It was surrounded by colonial sculptures. Today, the statue has been pulled from there and placed in a side room. It's in a corner and it's turned ever so slightly so it faces the wall.
2: How do you pronounce your name?
1: Uh, Guido Grissils.
2: Thank you, I'm glad I asked you. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, you can say that. Yeah. <laughs> You're not easily offended. It. No. So All go, right.
2: Here we are in front of what I found almost the most shocking piece at, that I saw when I first came here, even before the museum was open. Uh-huh. It's, it's a, a huge bust of King Leopold II, the villain of this piece, The builder of this building, the funder of the project. It's made of ivory. What do we know about who made it?
1: Well, Thomas Versot. The decision
2: to make this thing in what is now for us, you know, such a a rare and hunted material.
1: It was made by Thomas Versot, who was a very famous Belgian sculptor in around 1900. He first made a bust of King Leopold II, all in marble, which he then sold to the museum. And then he made a second bust, made out of ivory, and sort of made out of several uh, tusks from uh, elephants. And that indeed symbolized once again the glory of Leopold II. The glory of
2: Leopold II, I mean, a man who here... He's responsible for the deaths of several elephants just in order to have this
1: statue. When you think of it, that in 1900, um, the port of Antwerp imported about 5,000 tons of ivory. Now, 5,000 tons, if you think that one tusk uh, weighs on average about 40 kilos, so two tusks is one elephant, that's 80 kilos, uh, you can immediately see uh, that you're talking about something between 50,000 and 100,000 elephants that were killed uh, to produce the ivory that was imported in Antwerp in one year. Now, to give you a comparison of the last 20 years, 20 years in the whole of Africa, there was about 10,000 elephants that died. So, just the slaughter that they did in a couple of years at that time of Congo Free State is immense and so indeed when you look at that statue now, not only do you see uh, a monarch who ruled a country in which, which was really the expression of capitalistic expansion, of brutal violence, of oppression of people, of exploitation of a country. Uh, is not only a symbol for that, also symbol for colonial violence. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people died during the period of Congo Free State, but also the brutal way that they saw ways to recover their investments. Uh, firstly, by the ivory trade that uh, brought absolutely masses of money, but that led the seeds for the destruction of biodiversity of those countries. And then at the same time also, you had the rubber exploitation, let's not forget that uh, around that period, Henry Ford invented cars and Dunlop invented tires. Uh, the price of rubber increased, there were only two countries in the world where rubber was produced in a natural form, Brazil and Congo. Price of rubber went to the roof. So. King Leopold gave order to all of his people to produce as much rubber as they possibly could in the shortest possible period. And so put enormous pressure. I mean, there was forced labor. um, There were people taken whose family was taken hostage if they didn't produce enough. They had to produce,
2: they had quotas. They They had quotas. They had to produce a a certain amount. Quotas
1: individual and quotas by village. And if the village didn't uh, reach its quota, um, they were taken hostage. Uh, sometimes villages were burned down. Sometimes people were killed. It's impressive. You, you, you oh know, no, by the way, why, why this thing was turned? No. Originally, when we it put face it. Face on, yes. It, originally, on. The, the bust was face on. And what we had is all these former colonials and sort of people who think, oh, you think of, uh, of uh, King Leopold as a big hero. They all came and said, look what a great king we had, and whatever. And basically we turn him a little bit to already show, hey, listen, we now take distance from him, uh, we rather see the back of him. It's a bit symbolic, sort of. Just... you take a picture of it? <laughs>
0: Coming up is the memorial hall and the artwork Ombres, which translates as shadows. It's by the Congolese artist, Freddy Simba. And if you want to see a picture of this space and artwork and all the others we discuss... Visit us on Twitter and Instagram at behind the museum. I mean, here
2: we're standing in front of an extraordinary wall, which is the names of all the Belgians who died in Belgian Congo between 1876 and 1908. There are, what, 1,500 names here? Yeah,
1: 1,600. 1,598, to be correct. These are all the names of white uh, male Belgians, may I stress that, because they were... Women that died during that period too, and that are not on the walls. So it's the, 1598 male Belgians that died in the early years of colonization of Congo Free State. And they're all presented as heroes. I mean, if you uh, read the text uh, below, uh, that Labor for Chaseau Pié de premier Pionnier, we can never give enough tribute to their memory. There's not a single mention of the Congolese that died during the same period and so we asked an African artist by the name of Freddy Chimba to make an installation. What he did is our museum started with a temporary exhibition in 1897 where Leopold II also brought in 266 from the from Congolese from the Congo, from the Kasai, he brought them here to Tervuren to put their villages around the lakeside. Today it's we would call them human zoo. zoos, Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Today they would call them human zoo, and it's basically when you look at it today, it's disgusting that you display people in such a way. So, but the exhibition was a huge success. Uh, 1.3 million Belgians, that's one Belgium in three at that time, came to Tervuren, and that gave King Leopold support to uh, sell Belgian uh, Congo Free State to Belgium to be run as a Belgian colony, and so, but. During that exhibition of 1897, seven Congolese died.
2: Over what period? How long did this last? Oh,
1: it was three months. And it was a very cold summer. So, seven Congolese died because of pneumonia. And so, he took their names, put them on, on the windows, together with some other names of Congolese that died in Belgium at the same period. He put them here on the window. And when the sun shines, their names get projected on the names of. Uh, of the white Belgians that died in Congo. And symbolically, what it says is that it reminds us of the Congolese victims of the colonial past, but also that shed a shadow over the Belgian colonial past in Congo. It's a shadow over our past.
2: So the the lettering of these Congolese names is much bigger than the lettering of the Belgian names on the opposite wall. Was that done on purpose?
1: I suppose it was done on purpose to make sure that uh, you would get the projection from the sun on on the wall. Because it, I must admit, it doesn't always work. You need to have a pretty strong sun and it's only under a certain angle that you will see it. I mean, not every day you will see those names projected because there's just not enough sun.
2: So is it too complicated? Do you wish you'd done it differently?
1: Well, it's certain, I find it very strong. Artistically, it's very strong. But you need to understand it. If you, if we would have walked here through now, you wouldn't have known. You know, you would have wondered, well, what's all this about? You know. Uh, but if you see the names projected on the walls and that, you know, that idea of projecting a shadow on that Belgian colonial past, it's a very strong exhibition. Uh, I think, if I would have known. I would have uh, pleaded for technical installations that re- would reinforce the projection. For example, have lamps or lights or spots that projected at all times. It's a bit of a pity because I mean, it's. I find it such a strong symbolic uh, work of art. You know. What do
0: you think about
2: Well, I. think. I think. It, I think I've seen it three times now, and from the very first moment, I was very, very touched by it. But I. I. I sometimes have difficulty with um, things where you have to work it out. So for example the African names that are on the glass are back to front because of course they're going to be projected by the sun shining from the outside. So if you're walking through here it's quite complicated. On the right hand side you've got this list with all these uh, Belgian names in, in very small letters but it is very clear. And on the left hand side you have these, these this big lettering, but it's back to front. You can't really read it, so you have to understand what it's trying to do. Once you do, though, or even if you only see it once, it never leaves you. It was one of the things that I most took away from my first visit.
0: Yeah, I mean, I do think there's something because it's fleeting. It does mean you do work at it or you wait for it. You don't necessarily walk by immediately. And maybe that is actually, it's, it's making you pay attention. Yeah. Yes. yeah, that's true. It also recalls for me, maybe this is because this is in the news at the moment, but the debate about naming of halls and galleries after sponsors. And what you've got here are the names of the people, not the sponsor. That's and that sort of, in terms of taking back the gallery space, I think that sort of it adds to the
1: symbolism yeah. a little.
0: So what are we standing in front of here?
1: See, these are what you call the giant masks from the yaka. It's called the kakungu mask. It's an enormous mask.
0: How big in feet would you say that is?
1: Uh, hang on, I need well, to uh, look at it for a minute.
0: must be it's jolly. It's
2: jolly nearly three feet. Yeah. The face is all is made of wood. And then it has this extraordinary hair and beard made of um, f- some kind of organic fibre.
1: It's, it's a very frightening mask and it was used, they call it the Kakungu mask, and it was used during initiations um, to basically to protect the boys who were being initiated from evil uh, outside things, also a little bit to give them fear also of, uh, of the initiation rite. Uh, but also as a sort of protection rite, so they were dancing with it. Um, I was told that there's 24 of such masks worldwide, and I we w- have I 18 of them.
2: I want to ask you that about that. So, there are only 24 of these.
1: Yeah, that's there what There are 18 happens.
2: here, of which you display how many?
1: Uh, I think we display two of them. Two. Uh, there are several from the other types as well, and but yeah. I mean,
2: this is such a fundamental example of what faces many, many Western museums, which is that they have collections that are so huge they can only show a tiny proportion of their holdings. Do do you think that's going to be um, uh, made much of in the demands for restitution, that actually Western museums have much more than they could deal with. Or show it or lose it.
1: In in our museum, you see, we show less than 1% of the collections that we actually have, right? We have, uh, at the moment, in this museum, there's about 700 objects, and we have 135,000. So not even half percent of the collection we show. Now, that doesn't mean that all the 135,000 are all the same quality. I mean, you you have to be very careful what we say. But I fully agree that every Western museum with collections from Africa has a large collection from which maybe one, most 2% is used for displays. That doesn't mean that the other part is never used. I mean, they're being used for loans, they're being used for exhibitions elsewhere, they're being used for scientific research. But certainly, I share the opinion that giving back a number of objects wouldn't necessarily stop the work of, of of a museum, you could continue what you have. And I, I think it's also important to, to quote what, uh, for example, the Congolese themselves say, for them it's priority to keep the heritage that they still have today. And when we talk about restitution, they want to particularly talk about those objects that are missing in their collections, like if they wouldn't have anything of, of the Yaka, for example, or very little of the Yaka, or they would like to have a, uh, a statue that symbolizes the chief of the uh, Luba or of the Kuba people. We have series of them and, and certainly it would not hurt our museum to give back one or two so that the Congolese have a complete collection of every ethnic group.
0: One or two? or
1: It's open for debate. But then the question is, who can claim? Mm-hmm. Is, yeah, it, is, it, is it the local village? Is it the people who inherited it or sort of uh, the descendants from that local village? Is it the Museum of Congo or is it the government of Congo? I it's mean, a
2: I can see that that's, that's a legitimate question to ask. But it's also a question that's been used as a way of pushing back against restitution. No, what I'm kids. saying is that I am... Surely there must be a way that can be found.
1: Well Very simple. For me, my partner is the, uh, the Congolese government. Mm. The president of Congo asked me back, I mean, I will see all the motions, but that's for me a legitimate mm-hmm. party.
2: So we have a new President because of Congo, the old one said that he was going to ask for everything back. Have you heard from the new President? No,
1: no. But, um, but that, for me, because see, a lot of this debate on restitution is being done by African diaspora. I mean, it's been done by civil society in Europe. Mm -hmm. And so, they now ask for institution as well. But legally, for me, it's very difficult to to deal with them. They have a legitimate say in the discussion. They can be around the table. But the claim itself has to be made. For me, it's the, the formal government, the prime minister or the president.
0: The colonial history and independence gallery and within a small glass case which hold slave shackles. There's something that looked like a horse's bit, but it's actually,
2: again, wrist shackles with a chain in between. I mean, these were horrendous things. Do you think that by having such a small display, Guido, that somehow you're underplaying this? I mean, this, this vitrine is only, you know, three feet by three
1: feet. Perhaps yes. Um, we show it; it's moving. But I agree with you. It could have been made much, much stronger. Think, we really every really, visitor should feel the pain of the. You should those feel things. it viscerally. Yeah. I mean,
2: it's really worth reconsidering this and making it slightly yeah. more the, punchy.
1: The one problem that I do have is that we also show pictures of violence. You know, the colonial violence. You know, people with chopped-off hands. People that were hanged. People with the with the uh, the shackles and the chains. How they walk. You know, uh, bit by bit, you see the pain. But then you have to ask yourself: We're a family museum, and we have a lot of children here. Originally, we had the idea of showing those that those evidence of violence on big screens. You know. But then we start thinking that you know forty percent of our public are young children, are they going to be able to cope with it? So in the end, we show it, but on small photographs, that, which doesn't nearly have the strong visual impact.
0: It's not also necessarily a way of um, creating understanding, because in some of the Holocaust museums, you have to you go in a crate. You take at the beginning a a name of a real person and you find. But that strikes me as sort of assuming that you can only understand what happened if you experience it. And the comparison between visiting a museum and going to the camps, I I find that slightly almost like entertainment and slightly degrading. Um, I also think you can't experience it in a museum. No, and then there's the sort of the pictures. They're real people, and there's almost something invasive about putting it up really big. The old entrance rotunda, with its gold colonial and marble sculptures, has been added to with an artwork by the Congolese artist M. A. Mpané. It's a large head in light wood.
1: Times the double L of Leopold II. See the monogram of Leopold II, that is very pompous here. You see the Congo star, the laurel, and then you have here the statues with titles like uh, Belgium Bring Civilization to Congo, Belgium Bringing Security to Congo, uh, Belgium uh, Bringing the Welfare to Congo. And what we've done here is we've asked the contemporary artist, M. Uh, Pane, to make a work. Um, that symbolizes the hope and optimism of Africa and that goes into dialogue with the mm-hmm. different uh, statues. And it's called Le Nouveau Souffle, Le Congo Bourgogneau, sort of the new breast, sort of uh, booming boom Congo.
2: So what are these gold statues made of?
1: Oh, it's plaster, I think, and just with gold. Plastered. gold. Yeah. Um, but they're, they're protected monuments too. See, a lot of people say we should remove them. Uh, but... First of all, we can't, because it's a historical building. You can't just remove uh, objects, anything that was there in 1910. But also, we use it now to launch the debate between, with people about how we looked at Africa before, how we look at it uh, now. Very, he's now a real world famous artist. I mean, he's been invited by the Smithsonian for artist in residence. And he's Congolese? And
2: yeah. he lives here? He
1: lives in Brussels, yeah. But he, he said several times that when he saw the request that he did, did he really want to do this? Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the end he did. And, and he's very what do you successful. think
0: of the piece?
1: I think it's fantastic. I think it's very moving, actually. Why do you like and it? It's, well, because it's very human. It gives it a very human face. That's why I like it.
2: Giddle, how does this dialogue work that you're talking about? I mean, you you have this... M. M. Pane sculpture made of bronze,
1: is it bronze? Bronze Bronze. Bronze and wood, yeah.
2: So how do we know that these sculptures aren't looking past each other? How do we know that there is real dialogue?
1: Well, um, of course it's explained in the text what the meaning is. And uh, I think most people really like these statues. And it leads to debates. I see a lot of people when they come here. They sit down and and they talk to each other. Whether it works Uh, for sure, I don't know yet. It would be too early, but I can see a lot of people talk and dialoguing while they're standing here.
2: So the dialogue is the conversation that the people have as a
0: result of seeing these things
1: together.
0: And then we ended up at the crocodile gallery. Okay, so this is as it was. Yeah, this is uh, is an old old the
1: crocodile gallery. And uh, we see our museum as a lieu de mémoire. I mean, when you entered, you saw that text, sort of uh, everything passes by except the past. Um, here, uh, we kept this gallery as a sort of witness of the past, a uh, memory gallery, sort of uh, uh, a lieu de mémoire, a sort of uh, place of memory. We've kept this gallery exactly the way it was in 1910, the same composition with the sort of uh, crocodiles at the center Uh, with uh, animals in ethanol, uh, fishes and snakes and uh, reptiles kept in ethanol. Uh, You also see collections of butterflies, uh, of uh, all sorts of scarabees, of uh, different animals. And then, against the walls, you have uh, paintings from the Congo, Congo landscape who were completely restored as well. And they're all presented, all the collections are presented in the uh, showcases that were there in 1910, so nothing has changed here, okay. the, the time stands still. and in it's, fact,
2: it's, it's partly a nostalgic journey, I mean there will be a lot of Belgians who will have come here as children and the one thing that will have stuck in their minds was the crocodiles, and yeah. people don't like too much change.
1: No, that's true. Did you, I did mean, you, did
2: you have to pay homage to this childhood memory? People wanted to see the crocodiles. That's not why
1: we did it. Basically, we want to keep part of the museum as the way we looked at Africa before. And this is such a good example of the way natural history museums 100 years ago looked at Africa. They just looked at the animals as if there's no human beings there, as if nobody lives there, as if Africa has the nature and Europe has the culture, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's as if the time stood still that we kept it and it's more of an illustration, this is how we looked at Africa before, look at this gallery, there's not a single human being uh, that is being presented. Um, Mm. It's just pure technical. It's It's
2: a Garden of Eden.
1: It's a Garden of Eden, and of course you're right, a lot of Belgians come to this museum with uh, feelings of nostalgia, you know, the good old days. In, in French we say, la Belgique papa, that is Belgium, when everything was good, when Belgium was still one of the richest countries in the world.
0: And what, but, what do you hope that those people will gain from coming here?
1: Well, originally, see, in between this gallery and the other galleries, we had a plastic screen, you couldn't pass by there. The only way to come in was on the sides. The reason being that we want to make it clear to the visitor, okay, you've walked through contemporary Africa throughout the museum, here it stops, now you go 100 years back in the time. And so we had a big plastic glass there, you couldn't pass there. We were forced to take it away because a few children didn't see it and bumped their heads again and one of them spent a week in hospital and then I said just remove it, it's, uh, I'm, not worth, I'm not willing to pay the, that price uh, to make a sort of mental statement, you know um, but but you I, hope
0: I, that they see the contrast
1: I hope that they see the contrast i 'm realistic enough that for many Belgians, it would just mainly be nostalgia, you know uh, and the crocodile, which remains a very fascinating animal i don 't know whether you ever stood near a crocodile without protection. <laughs> I can tell you it's it 's an animal that scares the hell out of you,
0: so we met it. What do you think about this nostalgic gallery? Do you think it is a way of taking people by the hand to the other galleries? Perhaps. What's your view on it? I don't think so. I think I think I
2: think it is pure nostalgia, and actually, what you I think it it'll resonate a lot to people who remembered how the, it was before. But if you come to this museum for the first time, this is not really what you're going to take away. The message that you're going to take away is the decolonizing process is not a discolonizing, it's an engagement with more, more context, more detail, more information, more complexity, a bigger picture. And I think that's
0: really important. Thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Scenes at the Museum with myself, Tiffany Jenkins, Fiamato Rocco and Rita Casals. Do take a look at the photographs of our visit and much, much more on Twitter and Instagram at Behind the Museum. The podcast website has links in a bibliography for this episode and do please rate, review and recommend this podcast to your friends and colleagues.
2: (utches) ea oh, yeah, oh, oh, oh,